a great honor for me this morning to introduce our speaker who will be with us today and Monday. He'll also be on campus today in some other settings that I hope you'll take advantage of after chapel in the study. If any of you don't have class, you're welcome to join us for a cup of coffee and just some casual conversation. And also later today at 1.30, I mean at 1 o'clock, excuse me, uh, in the Monroe Dining Room downstairs in the D.C., uh, World Ministries and Christian Concerns is going to sponsor a discussion with our speaker. Uh, it won't be a speech. It'll be a chance to interact. And I hope uh, you'll take advantage of those two opportunities. It's a pleasure to introduce him because he's become a true uh, friend to me and to my family. When I was in Sri Lanka with a group of you uh, last year, our speaker, Mr. Mendes, flew all the way down from Delhi, India, then got in a car and drove to the mountain town where Dr. Jaywardena and the students and I were, uh, probably an eight-hour drive on very windy roads, just to spend a day with, with Dr. Jaywardena and the students and myself. Then he got back in the car that night, drove back down to the coast, and flew out to go back to India. Uh, and I can tell you that is a friend who will do that amount of travel uh, just to spend six or eight hours uh, over tea uh, talking about the things of God and what God's doing in South Asia. Charles has a fascinating background. His name is Charles Mendes. His mother is a Canadian citizen, was, and went to Nepal as a missionary. She married a Nepalese man, actually an Indian man who became a Nepalese citizen, and Charles grew up his entire life in Nepal. He'll tell you more of his story, so I'm not going to tell you the details now because I've asked him this morning just to share his journey, but let me tell you the end of his journey, or at least the, the part in which he's in right now. God has opened up to him an amazing array of friendships all through India, Nepal, Bangladesh, all, even uh, all the way over to Japan and Southeast Asia, Cambodia, Laos, Thailand, Vietnam. Simply friendships that have found their center in the person of Jesus Christ. And, ta and, and, and Charles has been experimenting with an idea that if we were to focus on Jesus Christ and loving one another, focusing on Jesus Christ without compromise but focusing on him centrally, how would that work in Buddhist, Hindu, and Muslim nations? What would happen? And the story of his life up to this point is, is a real adventure. And uh, I want you to know that you'll have an opportunity to hear about leadership and leadership development and a global view of what Jesus Christ is doing around the world from a very unique perspective these next two days meaning Friday and Monday. And I hope uh, it'll challenge your thinking and uh, along with your thinking, challenge your will so that you might make decisions to become more informed about how God is at work in the world. Charles is going to speak, and there may be some time afterwards uh, here for some questions. So if, if you have questions pop up in your mind, we're hoping there'll be a little bit of time at the end for you to ask him some questions here in chapel before the end. Uh, he just arrived last night at 29 hours on an airplane, 
So uh, it's nine o'clock at night for him, and uh, I really appreciate his coming all this way to be with us. Let's welcome Mr. Charles Mendes. Thank you very much, Bart. It's really a privilege to be with you. Through Bart and his family, we've heard about Westmont, and through some other sources, we've wanted to be able to be here, but it just never worked out. And uh, I really thank the Lord that today it finally did work out. As Bart said, today, I'm just wanting to share with you the journey that I've had in my life from where I started off to where I am today. On Monday, I'd like to share with you about what it means to truly be all things to all men, that Christ be glorified. But for today, the verse I'd like to just share with you before we get into the journey is from Song of Solomon. It's taken from chapter 1 and verse 6. It says, Look not upon me because I am black, because the sun had looked upon me. My mother's ch children were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard have I not kept. I was born in Nepal. For those of you who don't know where Nepal is, I'm sure most of you do, it's uh, known more for the country of Mount Everest. One thing we have that we can be proud of, the fact that we have the world's tallest mountain. And so, b born in a small country up in the mountains to a mixed family. My mother was a Canadian missionary who had come to India. My father was an Indian businessman who had been invited by the king to come into Nepal. I was brought up in a family which had cultural differences, East and West. I used to see my mother and father trying to work out their differences. He looking at life from an Eastern perspective, she looking at it from a Western perspective. But one thing that was center in both of their lives was their love for Jesus Christ. He was a believer who was a businessman. She was a believer who wanted to be a missionary. She had given up everything to come to our part of the world. And like she used to say, once a missionary, always a missionary, she brought us up also with a missionary outlook. Her biggest dream in life was that her children would grow up to serve God as missionaries. My father's biggest dream in life was that his children would grow up to serve God as businessmen and support the church. So there was two different views that we were brought up with. The business that my father was involved in was tourism, and as a result, we had a hotel. So my mother decided the first mission she would start was start bringing in children that had no place to go and so she and my dad together adopted 10 children, and we grew up a family of 12. Her view was, what's an extra mouth to feed around a hotel? There's always extra food. 
And sure enough, there was. The frustrating part, though, was when you came home and all of a sudden your t-shirt that was your favorite one was no longer there. It had been given to somebody else. Or your favorite ball was no longer there. But it was good because it, it brought into us a sense that nothing was our own and we should be willing to share it. As life progressed, went through, grew up, went through school, went through college, it came to a place where I had to make a decision in my life of what I was going to do. I was called a Christian, but I was the furthest thing from being a Christian. Because of my father's influence, nobody in the church dare come up and challenge me. Or, for that matter, outside the church, because he had the connections, and in a small third world country, if you're the son of somebody who has connections, the police sort of look the other way if you get into trouble. And so I thought I had life made. And finally, my mother said, look, it's time for you to go to the States and go to Bible school. And I sort of laughed and I said, well, you know, you got the wrong son. Go ask my brother. Maybe he, he'll do that. She said, no. She says, I think you're the one that has to go. I said, well, it's not going to work. But she never gave up praying. And she kept praying that one day I'd agree. I finished college and the time came that I had to do something. My brother had got into our business of, of travel and was out trekking and asked me to go with him, taking a, a group of American doctors from the American hospital in uh, Bangkok, Army Hospital. And we had a very good time trekking the hills of Nepal. But while we were away trekking, an American lady came to visit and told my mother, she said, well, you know, I'll get you the visa for your son if he guarantees to stay at our religious institution for seven days. And after that, I'm sure he'll agree to stay for a longer time. Well, my mother never told me that after that part. When I came back, she said, uh, <clears throat> we've arranged it for you to go to the States. Only condition is you have to spend seven days in this place. So my mind started to think, I said, well, you know, getting an American visa is very difficult for a third world national. Here I was getting a visa, I was getting a trip to America, and all I had to do was last seven days at this religious camp. I said, that's great. I'll take all the tourism slides. After seven days, I'll go promote tourism in Nepal, do my own business, come back as a businessman, establish myself. The day before I left, I <clears throat> did something you're not supposed to do in Nepal. I went to meet the, the woman who ended up being my, becoming my wife. We're not allowed to have courtship. We're not allowed to really interact. Our marriages are arranged marriages. But Susan and I had grown up together, and the Christian community was a small community, and we'd gotten to know each other. And so I sort of snuck out and took my younger brother, and she had her younger sister, and we sort of met somewhere. And, thought we'll have a, a very quiet afternoon before I leave the next day. And she looked at me and she said, you know, God has finally answered my prayer, your mother's prayer, you're going to America, come back a missionary. It ruined the whole romantic afternoon. I said, can't you think of anything else? She said, look, the only person who probably can get away with saying it is me. You are a hypocrite. 
you profess to be a Christian, but you're the furthest thing from a believer in Jesus Christ. And nobody has the guts to tell you that. You can't go through life fooling yourself. You're going to America, come back as a missionary. Well, I cut short everything, and I said, okay, that's it, let's go home. And uh, got on the plane the next day, flew to the States with those thoughts haunting me all the way, come back as a missionary. I tried my best to put it out of my mind, but somehow it didn't work. Got to the States, and for the first three days, it was real easy. I thought, you know, I have four more days to go. Until on the third day, the lady who was playing the organ at, at this uh, sort of Christian retreat camp came up to me and she said, I really don't know who you are, but I know one thing. You need to make a decision to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. I sort of looked at her and I said, I'm a Christian. She said, I don't care. You need to make a decision. Well, cutting a real long story short, the seven days was two and a half years. I went back home, having finished a degree in the Bible, to work for the church full-time as an evangelist and be involved in preaching and teaching and bringing others in Nepal into the kingdom and making them Christians. Got married. My wife helped me with... with uh, the work we were called to do, and very rapidly rose to, to being in, in the leadership of the church in Nepal. The Christian community was small, trained leaders were very few, connections politically were non-existent in most leaders' case. I had everything it took to, to sort of climb the ladder and make it in the Christian world. But as I began to climb the ladder, as I began to be involved walking the, the hills of the, the kingdom of Nepal, distributing Christian literature, going into villages, getting people to accept Jesus Christ as their savior, and change from Hinduism into Christianity, I also started getting into trouble with the law. Nepal is a Hindu kingdom. The law was very clear that preaching Christianity was an offense which would not be tolerated. The jail term was six years for preaching Christianity in Nepal. But because of my father's connections, I was able to stay out of jail most of the time. And the police would sort of come and warn us, saying, you know, don't do it now, and we'd go somewhere else. And the church began to grow. The church in Nepal grew at a, a rate of over 40% per year, which was very high. And still today it's growing. The foreign missionaries were never really involved with the church. We had in Nepal what's called United Mission to Nepal, which is another unique thing where most of the mainline denominations came together to form the United Mission to work with social work. But the church was left to the Nepalese. As the church grew, persecution grew. And as persecution grew, the problem for the believers started to really grow. We finally got to a place where we realized we had to do something to to change the law so persecution wouldn't be as bad as it was. People were arrested, taken to jail, tortured. You name it, it sort of happened. Ours is a third world country. A jail in Nepal is not like the hotels you have for jails in America. They, a jail is a jail. You don't want your worst enemy to be there. And Christians were being thrown into jail. 
Finally, time came for me to go to jail. Again, using dad's connections, I got out real fast. Life went on. But eventually, it got to the place where the church decided we had to do something to change this situation. And again, because of my East-West cultural background, I was asked to become the spokesman for the church. So I started lobbying the British government, lobbying the American government, to do the only thing we knew, which was to put pressure on Nepal to sort of give freedom to the church. Our reason for doing that, many of you say, well, why go to America or go to England, was that 66% of Nepal's national budget was foreign aid. And England and America were two of the largest donors. So our sort of calculation was, Jesus Christ can't help us. So we need to go to where the money is and say, if the money is stopped, the government will get the message, and then they'll give us the freedom. We took our faith and put it into the political realm. We were Christians, and that's the best we could think of how to do. And we started lobbying. Got the British government upset with Nepal, got the American government upset. And in the course of all that lobbying, I was introduced to a man in, in Washington, D.C., who was very close to the, the Senate and many of the senators. And I, as a lobbyist, went in to see him, thinking he's a Christian, and a Christian that has politicians in his pocket will be a great help. And the first thing he said to me as I walked in, he says, what does the law in your country say? I said, it's just preaching Christianity, causing a disturbance to Hinduism is illegal. He said, well, why are you preaching and breaking the law? I said, I beg your pardon? He says, if the law says don't preach Christianity, why are you breaking the law? I said, well, the Bible teaches us to preach Christianity. He says, can you show it to me? And so I started showing him different verses that talked about preaching. And he says, none of these verses say preaching Christianity. It says, preach the gospel, make disciples, lift up Jesus. I said, but that's all the same thing. Jesus and Christianity are the same. He said, are they? And we had a two-hour-long meeting, and I kept trying to say, now I got you, you're a heretic. But everything he said had biblical background to it. And there was nothing that he said that I could not accept having biblical proof. And after two hours of this, I left that meeting not really knowing whether I was coming or going. I flew back to Nepal, shared it with some of our leaders, and I started to study and, and really get into the Word. And I realized that in our zeal to preach the gospel, bring the heathen from a point of being out of the kingdom into the kingdom, we had been so taken up with our love to preach Jesus Christ, that we had allowed ourselves to narrow down Jesus Christ to a box, which was Western theology labeled Christianity. And we wanted our people to give up their culture, give up everything, and become a Christian as we knew it, not as Jesus had lived it. And I started really wrestling with this in my life. And I realized we'd made a mistake. And as I began to realize it, it took me about two years to finally come to the place where I realized we were wrong. 
It took me five years to admit that we had been wrong. Coming to realization was, was not as hard as having to stand up to the leaders of the church and say, Look, I think we've made a mistake. The church in Nepal had no denominations. Either you were Christian or you were not. Either you were part of the church or you weren't. But still, we had alienated so many others in the course of trying to pre preach to them Jesus Christ. One of my friends who today is a minister in the cabinet of Nepal turned to me once when I had come to this point of realization. And he said, Charles, the problem with you Christians is you're more Christian than Christ. He said, if you'd only realize that if you lift up Jesus Christ, all of Nepal is open to hear. I began to realize that I had kept the church's vineyard, but my own vineyard I had not kept. I was involved in lifting up and building up the church of Nepal, but my own life of being an example and living out Jesus Christ was fallow ground that had never really been planted. Realizing that I had to do something about it, I finally got the courage to stand up in one of our committee meetings of the National Council of Churches in Nepal. And I said, look, I'm sorry, but I think we're going about it the wrong way. Everybody looked and said, what do you mean? I said, we need to be lifting up Jesus, not Christianity. I said, the other day, when I was sitting in court, we had a Hindu lawyer who used to plead the cases for the Christians. He got up one day and he said, Your Honor, these people are not Christians. I sort of sat there, sort of before I had really fully come to grips with this way of thinking. And I was wondering, what kind of compromise is this man going to make now? He said, They're not Christians, so they haven't violated the law. The only thing they're guilty of is having had a relationship with a person. The person is Jesus Christ. And as I started to think about it, and as I was in that meeting with the leaders that day, I said, you know, he was right. He was a Hindu. But we are so concerned in making people Christians, we really aren't concerned whether they have a relationship with a person. The person is Jesus Christ. They said, well, but it's the same thing. And I said, I thought so too, but it's not. They said, well, then are you trying to say, you know, humanism or Unitarianism or all everything, equalism? I said, no. We need to lift up the person of Jesus Christ, not religion. We don't need to be breaking our country up and alienating people with religion. We need to be building the country and bringing people together. And the only one who can do that is Jesus. Having taken that decision, I started working myself off all the committees, not to be involved in the church, but just to be available to lift up Jesus. And by the time I got off all the committees I was on, got out of all the leadership, the government decided it was time I accepted the government's hospitality on more than just a few day basis, and I was sentenced to six years in jail. When I went into the jail in Kathmandu, Central Jail, 
I went in thinking I had six years in there. It ended up as seven months. Democracy came to Nepal. Things changed in Nepal. And the king granted us a, a royal amnesty, a pardon, and we were released. But I had seven months to really think about the decision I had made. And to really get down and meditate and see whether the way I had read the Bible was really the way it was written. And whether Jesus Christ and Christianity were two different things or whether I was mistaken. When I got out of jail, the first thing we did was send a letter to the king and say thank you. Many of the Christian leaders said, why do that? He had no option but to do it. I said, no, as a citizen, it's our right to do that. Then we began to give our life to just work with the leadership in Nepal, political leadership, to let them come to know who Jesus is. And as, as we have been able to move in the last six years in our life of just lifting up Jesus, we've seen things happen that before we would never see happen. We moved to New Delhi, India five years ago just to be available, just to be there to lift up Jesus, to bring people to a relationship with Him, not to make people Christians. You say, well, I still don't get it. Christianity and Jesus is one and the same. If we really look at the scripture, and we'll talk more about it on Monday, Christianity is man-made. Jesus is the Son of God. He never preached Christianity. He preached love, compassion, and that if you lift him up, he will draw all men to himself. Who am I to think that I can draw a Nepali to Jesus? Who am I to think I can convert a Hindu to Christianity? It's only the work of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ that a Nepali can come to a relationship with him. And so as my journey came from, from a mixed culture to a very religious individual involved with the church, involved in preaching, involved in everything it took to be a part of the church, walking the mountains, distributing tracts, seeing people saved and brought into the church, and to today where it is wanting to live a life to lift up Jesus rather than make people Christians, but make them believers in Jesus. The only thing that can make a difference in the world today is if we become true believers in the person of Jesus and lift him up. Not if we profess to be in, involved in a religion. Religion can't change. Hinduism, Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, as religions, are all the same. The only thing that's different is Jesus Christ. And if we can truly come to a place where we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, and where we can lift Jesus Christ up, then we can begin to see a difference. Then we can be able to say, my vineyard has also been kept. Not that we've only kept somebody else's vineyard, but that we've kept our own vineyards as well. It's not been an easy journey. It's not been easy to, to give up things that we thought we lived for. And as I look back today, even at my going to prison, the only one regret that I have 
is that on the official decree that was given to me by the judge, it said my crime was guilty of preaching Christianity, not guilty of preaching Jesus Christ. I don't mind paying a price for Jesus Christ. But I'm ashamed to have to pay a price for something that's not uplifting to Jesus Christ. And the only regret today is that word Christianity there. I wish it had said Jesus Christ. Many of you may say in the judge's mind it was the same. We can justify. We can always find a way to point things together and to get the positive out of it. But in my mind, it was different. And it's a regret that I live with. And I come to you today to just challenge you to take a new look at Jesus Christ. In the name of loving Him, are we alienating Him from the rest of the world? Jesus preached love. But we can't sit and be loving to our neighbor or our fellow because they go to the different church than we do. I can't really associate with a Catholic because he doesn't believe the way I do. I can't associate with a Lutheran because I'm a Pentecostal. We're not talking of any other religions. I'm just talking of denominations inside the so-called Church of Christianity. But yet the divisions are so much. Why? Because we've made barriers on our own which have boxed Jesus Christ in. I think the time has come when we need to remove those barriers and let Him have free control. Just before flying from Delhi, I had gone down to, to visit Mother Teresa. She had just come out of hospital and my wife and I went down to just be with her for a little while. We were taken into her bedroom and I told her, I said, Mother, I'm going to the States. Is there anything you'd like me to say? She looked at me and she said, well, you know all that I always say. I said, no, I'd like to take something fresh. She said, ask the people to be consumed with nothing else than Jesus Christ. And I leave with you today those same words. Don't be consumed with church or religion, but be consumed with the fire that comes from Jesus Christ. God bless you. Nick, we have a little bit of time for some questions, and they're going to bring the lights up. So I'll invite you to come back up, Charles. And uh, there are some microphones at the back, or you can just stand if, if you want. It would be easier if you'd go to a microphone. And uh, what I heard Charles saying this morning is a tremendous challenge. One of the things I want to set as a tone in chapels and convocations is for us to be able to wrestle with ideas. Some of the ideas Charles presented this morning, you may really disagree with. You may struggle with them. You may be in agreement with them. But one of the things I'd like us to be able to do on a college campus especially is involve ourselves in the free exchange of competing ideas. So I want you to feel free to do that with Charles today and uh, in the other discussions as well. 
So uh, if there are questions, I can't see here very well. Just go to the mics or just stand up, either one. There's a microphone back there and there's one back there. Next. Give you a chance to think about it. Here comes one. Hi, Charles. My name's Adam. Uh, I'm wondering what your view is on Paul's teaching of the body of Christ with the church uh, and how the body is, is an essential part of, of discipleship and of gaining understanding, continuation um, of learning about Christ. And how can we, how do you incorporate that into your new ideas? Thank you, Adam. I think it's a very good question. The church, as we know it today, unfortunately in many places, is the four walls of the church we attend. But the church that I think Paul is referring to is a church which is a family. And when we work with the individuals in Nepal or in Bangladesh, we bring them as a Hindu or a Muslim to a point where they accept Jesus Christ. We encourage them to come to a relationship with a person of Jesus Christ. As they grow in that relationship, they begin to have people come round about them who they start having fellowship with. Rather than taking them out of their own position and bringing them into what would be our form of the church, we try to build a group around them where they are. Case in point, in Bangladesh today, there's over 200,000 Muslims who call themselves completed Muslims. They go to the mosque, they meet at the mosque, to the place where they have 600 mosques from the preacher or the mullah or the mulvi, whichever you want terminology, down who are believers in Christ. The preaching is taken from the Bible. The prayers they, they recite in the mosque is taken from the Psalms. But yet, as far as the community is concerned, because they're living in a Muslim country, they're still known as Muslims. But Muslims whose lives have changed, and Muslims who today are growing in their relationship with Jesus Christ. It's very important that the individual grows in a relationship with Jesus. And there are certain things they have to restrain from doing. There are certain things they have to cut off from. But at the same time, it's very important they remain inside their own cultural context, whether it's a Christian cultural context in America or whether it's a Muslim cultural context in, in Bangladesh or a Hindu cultural context in Nepal. Starting at that point and moving to a place where the fellowship they have is built around the person of Jesus. So the church that we see in them is the body that grows around them, which is the body of Christ there. I hope I answered it. Great. Other questions or follow-up question to that? Good question, by the way. Can we repeat the question? 
The question was, how, how, is it, how was it possible to establish a church in a country where the preaching of Christianity was against the law? You're referring to Nepal? Yeah. Yeah, uh, the churches in Nepal were all underground churches. Uh, it was a group of people would get together. The I mean, there was really no building that was a church building with steeples or anything like that. It was somebody's house. You had a big hall. You met there. You prayed. You worshipped there. Uh, in many ways, going back to the Old Testament, I mean, rather New Testament times where the church was just the church in that little area, the home or wherever it was. Um, all the churches were basically underground. Okay, back here and then we'll come down here. Yes, I'm wondering how you feel about the state of the Christian church in America today and how we as followers of Christ should take part in that. I'm a visitor in America. <laughs> I feel that God has blessed America in many ways because of the fact that this country was founded on, on biblical principles. Unfortunately, the church in America today has become a billion dollar business rather than lifting up Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to say there's not true believers. Don't get me wrong. But unfortunately, business has taken over. One of the Russian leaders, the number two man in Russia, when he was presented with the idea of, of Jesus Christ, he said, we're very open if what you're saying is true. But if this is a camouflage for the billion dollar business of Christianity of America, we don't want anything to do with it. And I think the verse that I started off with today is very relevant for the church in America. The church in America has done fantastic work in supporting foreign missions, sending dollars, sending missionaries, and doing things. But the fallow ground of the church in America, in America, needs to be broken up. It has kept the vineyard of many other countries and many people, but its own vineyard needs to really to be looked after. Okay, we had a question here, and then we'll go back there for our last question. Could you hear the question? She said, uh, let me try to summarize it. Uh, she said, if, if, if this presentation had been made, she'd been raised a Mormon. And if this presentation had been made, she would have thought, well, I already know Jesus Christ as a Mormon. And so would not have felt uh, the need to convert to Christianity, which apparently you have done. So she's asking, how does that fit in my context? How does Charles' message fit in the context of, of uh of Mormonism in, in her life? It, it fits, I would say, because I believe, in quoting the, the former chaplain of your Senate, Jesus Christ plus anything else is equivalent to heresy. Now, in the Mormon church, it was Jesus Christ plus the Mormon church. So, you, if you were just told of Jesus, you would have accepted the fact that you were believing in him, but you were believing him plus the crutch of the Mormon church. On the same token, if today 
your crutch has been replaced from the Mormon church to the Anglican church or the Lutheran church or the Christian church, it's still a crutch. The emphasis had to be Jesus and Jesus only, not to be misunderstood with the denomination Jesus only, but you know, basically just a relationship with the person of Jesus Christ and through him to be able to grow wherever he saw fit to put us. Whether it was in a Hindu kingdom, whether it was in a Mormon setting, whether it was in a, you know, a Catholic setting, wherever, but putting Jesus with no other strings attached or no other crutches attached and growing in him. And once someone starts to grow in that personal rela relationship, the people around us, if we're not able to identify with them, automatically we begin to move away because he is truth and he is purity. And once we're consumed with Jesus, automatically we push ourselves away from things that would compromising Jesus. Okay, time for one last question. Um, hello, uh, my name is Peter Vodder and I was just asked to see what denomination you are. And personally, I'd like to say, I had to write this down, sorry. Do you think that someone who is a new believer who identifies his or her spiritual relationship, the kind that you're talking about with Jesus, as um, being a Christian might get the wrong idea when you say that Christianity is bad, and how do you deal with this problem? Could you repeat that last part again? Um, okay. Do you think that someone who is a new believer who identifies his or her spiritual relationship with Jesus as being a Christian might get the wrong idea when you say that Christianity is bad, and how do you deal with this problem, like, daily? With regard to what denomination I am, come Monday and I'll tell you. <laughs> uh, the second part, of your, second part of your question, if I projected in what I said that Christianity is bad, I don't mean to say Christianity is bad. I mean to say, if Christianity is lifted up more than Jesus is lifted up, it's bad. <clears throat> Nothing, whether it's Christianity or anything else, can take precedence to a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I feel that the most important thing that we need to do as believers is learn to lift Jesus up. Not to lift our denominations or our church or our religion, but to lift Jesus up. Thank you, Charles, very much. Thank you.